Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the 2020 Democratic primary. This is a special two-year anniversary uh, episode for the Primarily podcast. It's not the anniversary of the Primarily podcast. It's the anniversary of uh, the Trump administration's being inaugurated on January 20th, 2017. Um, unbelievably, we are two years into that. Um, many of you may remember that the next thing happened that happened after Trump was inaugurated was the following day, there was a massive march um, all around the country and all around the world where millions of people came together in the Women's March in support of women's rights and freedoms and in opposition to the type of misogyny and bigotry that we had seen expressed by Trump throughout the campaign. Um, so this week, I'm going to be interviewing Lan Wu, the um, former chair of Democrats Abroad's Women's Caucus here in the UK to talk all about um, the Women's March and the women, the role of women in the democratic movement and the changing nature of our understanding of women's issues over these past two years. So it's been a busy time for that. Um, and uh, we, we have a lot to say, as you'll see. But before that, we'll do a quick news roundup. Um, we've had a couple of exciting announcements on the primary trail. Um, things feel like they're really heating up. So we'll go into that. We'll talk a little bit about the ongoing government shutdown and the other news of the day. So a quick news roundup for you. The big news this week uh, from the primary point of view is that New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has announced her entry into the race. Uh, I would think it's fair to say it's not a huge surprise that Gillibrand would step into the race, but it's worth pausing a moment to reflect upon a little bit her and what her candidacy stands for. Um, she's been a member of the House of Representatives and a senator. She actually became a senator um, after Hillary Clinton was nominated for Secretary of State, stepping into um, then Senator Clinton's uh, Senate seat for New York. Um, her uh, positioning um on entering the race has been very much to put herself forward as a mom, um, someone who can bring people together. Um, she talks a lot about her family and her kind of personal experience of, of raising young children. Um, it's fair to say as a, especially when she was a representative, she was seen as as very sort of on the more conservative to moderate end of the uh, Democratic coalition at that time. Uh, she is seen as she's positioned herself more in a more progressive direction as a senator, um, as she pointed, as Rachel Maddow pointed out when she went on her program on MSNBC. Um, Gillibrand statistically is the senator who's voted the, the least the most often against Donald Trump, um, including not voting for any of his his political appointees and nominees. Um, so, you know, she's one to watch. She's a serious, a serious figure in the party. Um, I have always found it a little hard to kind of get a read on Gillibrand. Um, and I think that's, that's a lot of the um, criticism that I hear from her, um, uh, of her from others. Um, she's certainly a, a serious and, and brilliant person. Um, so I will be curious to see how she, how she puts herself forward in the race. Um, and she has evolved quite a bit in some of her positions. So it will be, um, kind of interesting to see how she discusses that evolution that she's been on, whether it was a change in constituency that, you know, when she was representing a relatively conservative New York Demo district, perhaps she, she felt different than when she was a, 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 a senator for the whole state or whether she's had a, a sort of change of heart um, and an evolution on policy. I'd like to hear that. Um, and, and But certainly it's it's great to see a prominent and, uh, and successful female candidate come forward. And, and I, as a 
parent, mother of young children myself, always, well, one young child, um, always like to see um, people talk about parenting as a, as, as a motivating factor. Um, she kind of is leaning in a little bit more to her femininity than say someone like Elizabeth Warren is doing. Um, and I think that that is in some ways, it was well, an interesting choice because uh, there's a lot of evidence to say that that women tend to get punished when they present themselves in ways that are um, stereotypically unfeminine, um, and and tend to do better when they're perceived as being more feminine. However, also people who present with stereotypically female attributes are often not seen as being as leader-like. Um, so I don't know if any of that's going to feed into how Gillibrand puts herself across during this race, but I will certainly be watching it with great interest as I'm, as I'm sure will everyone listening to this podcast. In other news this week, Nancy Pelosi withdrew her invitation for, to Donald Trump to speak at the State of the Union. Um, the Constitution requires that the president update the Congress on, quote unquote, the State of the Union regularly. Um, it has become a tradition for the president to do that in the form of a address to the joint houses of Congress, um, which has become a very big theatrical moment traditionally done every year. But it's worth noting that has always been optional and certainly not constitutional mandated to do it in that format. Um, Pelosi has uh, suggested that given the ongoing government shutdown and the significant security cost um, of and, and personnel uh, difficulty of staffing uh, such a significant public event as the State of the Union that the president could just submit a report in writing, which I think is hilarious. I don't know, it just cracks me up, the idea that that Donald Trump might just like send a book report in um, when when everybody knows that what he really wants is is a big TV moment like the State of the Union. So, um, okay, Nancy might be being a little cheeky with that, um, perhaps, but I I think she actually does raise a serious point that a State of the Union is actually a big national event, requires a lot of staff. Um, those staff are currently furloughed or um, or working without pay, so that seems um, seems inappropriate given the moment. Uh, Donald Trump has responded to this somewhat strangely by withdrawing uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, permission to use um, a, a f an airplane for a congressional delegation visit to Egypt, um, uh, to Egypt, Brussels, and um, Afghanistan. Um, this he, he's called this a, a press opportunity or a PR opportunity that's inappropriate in light of that. It, it, it isn't a, a press opportunity. The, the purpose of it was to conduct oversight on foreign engagements uh, that America is conducting overseas, which is part of Pelosi's responsibility as, as Speaker of the House. Not that I would expect Donald Trump to understand the difference between doing your job and going on TV, but they're not one in the same. Um, so he withdrew permission for her to uh, use a federal uh, uh, an aircraft for that. She then intended to fly commercially, um, but has had to cancel that with further security concerns arising um, and the suggestion that Trump actually leaked um, her commercial travel plans as well. Congressional delegations are normally um, confidential information. Their travel schedule is for understandable reasons, not something that we generally release to the public. Um, it's a little unclear how her schedule then did get out in public, and it looks like it may have been released by 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 Trump staffers themselves um, it's an unedifying spectacle anyway you look at it um, we'll see what happens 
Another news item this week, Trump's nominee for Attorney General, uh, William Barr, has been appearing in front of the Judiciary Committee um, giving testimony. It's worth remembering Barr um, is up for nomination. He, and as was discussed in front of the Judiciary Committee, was selected for the post um, after not having any position um, in, in in the White House. He was um, initially raised to the interest of the White House after he proactively wrote an article and sent it to the White House saying that he thought that Mueller was potentially overreaching in his probe. So a lot of people are understandably very concerned that Barr's selection out of nowhere as attorney general um, is uh, Trump's attempt to protect uh, to protect himself against Mueller's ongoing investigation. Um, it's worth saying Barr himself is a serious lawyer and a serious legal thinker in, in DC terms. So it's not that he's unqualified for the role of attorney general, but um, the concern that he might have been selected specifically as someone Trump's thinks, Trump thinks will protect him from Mueller is obviously causing concern. And finally, I just want to note as as I did last week that the the federal government remains shut down, which means that once again, up to 800,000 federal workers will not be receiving a paycheck this week. Um, it is devastating for families to have to find ways to carry on without a paycheck, especially families that have been um, doing work on behalf of America's national security. Transportation Safety Administration workers, for example, air traffic controllers um, are required to work, but are not allowed to uh, request, uh, are, not, are not being currently paid for their service. Um, that in my mind is completely unacceptable. And I don't want us to go and a week without me noting that on the podcast that um, a lot of damage is being done to the, 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 the well-being of some very dedicated American public servants. And I, I am sorry for that. And my heart continues to go out to them. Um, and I hope that we can find a way to resolve uh, this impasse and get you paid as you deserve. So good luck. So welcome to Lan Wu, um, the amazing Democrats Abroad activist and, and former chair of, of the Women's Caucus of Democrats Abroad UK. Um, Lan, would you be able to just quickly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're all about? Yeah, sure. My name is Lan. Um, I'm the former co-chair of the Women's Caucus here uh, with DA UK. Um, and I'm all about women's rights um, and women's rights in the progressive democratic movement um, and how that pertains to all sorts of democratic issues such as climate change, um, environmental activism, um, swinging to domestic violence, um, gun violence, and also, of course, reproductive rights. So that that's quite a policy agenda that will certainly keep you busy if we if we manage to crack all those all those problems. But good luck to you um, and to all of us, really. Um, extraordinarily, um, it's it's kind of hard for me to believe, but it is it is now coming up on two years since the day that Donald Trump was inaugurated as president, um, a very troubling day for America, um, and also two years since what happened the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated, which was which was the Women's March, um, which happened in the U.S. and and around the world. Um, over three million people participated in the Women's March in that year, um, in countries, as I say, all around the world and all across the United States. Uh, tell me about the experience of the Women's March two years ago. Yeah. 
So um, the first Women's March was, of course, the day after Donald Trump's uh, inauguration. Um, and we had um, 10,000 estimated people here in London march. So it was this huge day um, where we filled the space um, and, and, and then some um, that was designated for the march. Last year, the second... And where, where was it, just geographically, so our, our listeners have a, have a mental image? Yeah, so um, it was meant to start at Grosvenor Square, where the U.S. Embassy was at that time. And um, the march was to Trafalgar Square. Um, what ended up happening was that there were so many people that came that instead of a march, it was almost like a rally where there were just people right. filling the entire march space. It was, it was too packed to move. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> it was really. Yeah, it was really such a yeah such an experience. Amazing. Um, and last year they moved it to um, across from 10 Downing Street. Um, so the march was right on um, right on Whitehall there. Uh, and it was that was a year that I had the opportunity to speak. It was um, this or the first day, the first march, it was like sunny, beautiful. Um, last year it was rainy and snowy and freezing. Um, but it was like this really similarly, despite the weather, it was this really uplifting, like really like atmosphere of thousands of women together. I think they estimated 7,000 last year where people were just really hopeful. This atmosphere of, yes, we're talking about all these problems. We're talking about domestic violence. We're talking about racism. We're talking about sexism. Um, but we're talking about it in a way that how can we change that? Um, how can we direct our activism and how can we make um, a more positive future? And you really see that in like the number of kids that show up to those marches. You have these little kids that have these like adorable signs about their future and what they want these marches to mean for their future. And it's this really positive experience. That is so lovely. And um and the march is going on. Is is something happening this year? Should people be looking out for something right now? It is. It's happening tomorrow, the 19th. Um, and it is Portman Square. Um, and yes, it's it'll, it'll be the third march here in London. And March is happening in, in the in America as well and around the world, so part of a global movement. Yeah, it is. It's definitely happening in America. Um, it's definitely happening all over the world. Um, there, I think it would be a miss to not talk about the controversy um, yep. that surrounded the march this year. Um, so, yeah, this, so the organizers of the Women's March in the U.S. have become extremely controversial. Um, it's something I did want to talk to you about. Um, so Debbie Wasserman Schultz and, and a number of other leading political figures and, and and former march participants have said that they will not be marching this year with that particular group. So my first question for you was, um, like, just we'll get into what the controversy is all about in a second, but that's just the U.S. organizers, is it not? Because there is also Women's March International and also each country. Have I understood the organizational principle correctly? Yeah. So you see this year, um, it is definitely the U.S. organizer organization that is sort of embroiled in um I'll say controversy quote unquote because I have a, a lot of things to say about it. But um yeah. you do see um 
the international groups trying to purposefully distance themselves. They just, they, they don't want to be associated with any ideas and any um, anti-Semitism. They just want to continue the good work that yeah. they're doing and yeah. focus on issues that they want to focus on. So if you show up to the march in London tomorrow, you will not be associating yourself with these individuals in this group if, if you are concerned about that. So for the record, now we should talk about what what the objections and what the concerns have been and, and what you think about all that. Yeah, so the to, um, just for the benefit of anybody that hasn't been um, reading the news on this, it is there's definitely a lot of sides to this. It is a case where right from the beginning, the organization of the Women's March leaders, um, they did not right from the beginning say we, you know, they said we were standing up for intersectionality, we were standing up for Muslim women, we're standing up for disabled women, we're standing up for all these different types, trying to sort of encompass all women in one group, which is a huge, it's a lofty goal. Um, and in that really long list, they didn't, they did not include Jewish women in that list. Um, so for a lot of Jewish American women, um, that that felt like, what about us? Like, where is our part in this um, huge organ in this huge movement that has been created? Um, if you fast forward to last year, um, you see leaders of the Women's March. Um, notably Tamika Mallory and Linda Sparsor that are sort of there 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 are situations that they they put in where for instance Tamika Mallory um she was a um she's part of a group that is that has helped her um god I, I'm like forgetting the name of the group right now but she's part of a group that is um that has helped her significantly through her own past and helped her through really tragic incidents in her life. And there's one leader of that group, uh, Louis Farrakhan, who is a disagreeable human being. He has said very anti-Semitic things in his, his past, and he is, you know, sexist and really not a nice person. Um, and you're seeing people saying, Tamika Mallory, you need to stand up and say, you do not support Louis Farrakhan, and you are not anti-Semitic. And she did not she's she's been very clear that she's not anti-semitic and she stands for all women but she did not come out and say i don't support louis Farrakhan the way that people wanted her to right so you have this situation where it's really being like she's you know there's definitely both sides of that she has a lot of history with this group she has a lot of reasons why she needs she's is supportive of the group itself not particularly Farrakhan. um and then you see other groups feeling like she needs to make a statement that she um, is not willing to make. Yeah. So what I think is that the Women's March organization should have very early on and much more strongly said we are fully, fully against anti-Semitism. And that is not something um, that we as leaders, um, you know, we are, we're, of course, we're here for Jewish women. Of course, we're here for those, for that um, racist against them and all the things above. Um, but you do, I do kind of feel like this is another, it's an instance where it's, yeah. it's hugely taken out of context and, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not like the, it's not a situation where the women's March organizers are, 
yes, we're here and we're we're not for Jewish women, if you know. And I think and I think part of the thing that 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 always strikes me about this controversy is I, I think there are some very serious concerns that might have been raised about these individual people, but my understanding of the march and the way that it has always worked is it's a very kind of collectivist organized activation in that there are people who have put themselves forward as leaders and who have have run particular aspects of it but it has always been a march organized by thousands and thousands and even potentially hundreds of thousands of people who all have different organizational roles and not not under the organizational or hierarchical structure of any one activist group either so um it's difficult to 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 talk about you know, obviously, we we want to be completely, as you say, embracing of women from all sectors of the of the world. Um, and at the same time, there are going to be controversial people in any large group of people that you pull together. So it's um, it's inevitable that there will be controversial people associated to any movement as large as this. Um, and that doesn't necessarily discredit what the what the movement itself is trying to do. And I think there's been some efforts that I've seen that feel like you know, people are trying to say, well, I respect the, the march itself, but I want to distance myself from these people. But then some other people are trying to dismiss the whole movement on the back of a few, uh, the, these individual people. And I think we really need to make clear that, that, that the goals of what the Women's March is trying to stand for are inclusive, even if not every single person has behaved as they should have throughout. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think you brought up a lot of good points there. And one is that these are this group of organizers are just the 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 sort of the names that you see most often. But the, yes, there are tons, there are you know dozens and dozens of people that are working behind the scenes. Um, and the goal is super, super lofty. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to encompass all women in one group. Um, but I think also what's important is that arguments and controversy and conflict is okay. Yeah. Like women activists have been arguing with each other for you know as long as women have been activists and men have been activists there are we're trying to topple some you know real injustices um that have been laid in our society for since society itself has existed yeah and there isn't going to be one version of how we do that sure so Conflict is okay. The fact that there is conflict, that I would be more concerned if there was no conflict, if there was one brand that was being put forth and that was the only message. The fact that people have disagreements and the fact that people are openly discussing this, um, I think is actually crucial to this to the movement itself. I mean, sure, if this was easy, we would have done it already, right? I mean, the whole <laughs> the whole reason why we need a movement of this scale and of this diversity is because we haven't been able to solve these problems so far. And, and it's not going to be something that we all instantly agree on the right way forward. But I do think it, with that in mind, um, the impact that the Women's March has been able to have has been extraordinary. And I think beyond what most of us would have expected. Um, and, and it, you know, when it, when it started, I mean, originally it started as basically just a woman posted on a Facebook group saying, wouldn't it be great if women all got together the day after Trump's inauguration? And it just blew up from there. So nobody went into this going, hey, let's completely transform the patriarchy. <laughs> it, it was more like, I feel strongly about this. I don't feel women are getting, are, are, like Donald Trump deeply disrespects women. And that was the trigger for people 
speaking up about a whole range of other issues that have always been there, but we were able to focus on them at this time because the open misogyny that came out in our political system suddenly was unavoidable. You you had to confront it, and women women felt that that was just enough is enough. Um, I'm slightly editorializing there, but that's that's kind of how it felt to me. It was like people were just going, "Oh hell with this." <laughs> absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I and it's important to remember that this march is not the be all and end all. It is, it's a group, a huge group of people that say that, that don't approve of Donald Trump and his racist, sexist rhetoric standing together. But it is, it is that it is groups of people getting together and saying that and, and, and having a message, but that's, that's, that is important to, to note that the people that is that's it's not where it ends, right? Yeah. Having that message, having that unified message, that's great. But as soon as people walk away from that march, that's when the real work happens, the real activism, the, the that work um, is arguably much more important than showing up to a march. But what the march does is it brings people into, brings people, you know, people that haven't been activists in the past. They they have a chance to say to join a group, meet these people listen to their message and then walk away hopefully with some some great things to do um and to to affect the real change to 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 affect that change and i think there's i think it's really interesting because women have been a majority of democratic voters for a long time now um the the gender gap so-called gender gap where women are more likely to vote democrat and men are more likely to vote republican has been around for you know for a couple of decades now in in a significant significant way but it feels like something is different different is happening within the party now um in the midterm elections in 2018 of course we saw so many female candidates um emily's list talked about i think 27 thousand um, people stepping forward and asking for training as because they wanted to be candidates almost half of the democratic candidates for the house were female which is which was the first time that's ever happened we've had record numbers of women actually um, actually win elections and and go into the house um, obviously we are far from equality but it felt like a big step was taken forward not just in women being participants in the party but actually leaders of it and that has filtered through right into the early movers in the democratic primary where you've got, even in this very early days, two significant, I guess you could call them top tier female candidates who have already announced um, that they're running in Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, it's very likely that, say, Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar might join them. Um, there are lots of other women who are, who are looking at it. Um, do you think the Women's March played a role in kind of this transformation into putting women fast forwarding them into the top tier of democratic leadership um i i i definitely think it has a role um but again i think that it's those women in particular um that you mentioned that are at that top tier running for president i think they've been working working their butts off for a long time sure to where they are today i don't think the women's march um they necessarily needed the women's march but I do think that it sort of brings attention to the support and things like women donating to Emily's list and run for something and, and just having a conversation with their friends, their girlfriends saying, Hey, like you'd be awesome. You should run for office and getting those women to do that, to that before you just, people just were less likely to go up to women and say, you should run for office. And now hopefully, um, 
they they get approached in a, a way that's almost as much as men get approached for those types of things. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's definitely tangible. It's not, um, yeah. So to, a short answer to your question, yes, I do think it <laughs> is a part, but the long answer is I think it's much more complex than uh, just a march. Sure. I mean, there's, I mean, and, and it is very complex. I mean, the reasons why women perhaps haven't been more prominent in politics in the past are partly outright misogyny, but also a, a whole range of other issues about women being less likely to put themselves forward. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of evidence that says, for example, women are, women are tend to believe they're less qualified than they actually are, whereas men believe the opposite, like just as general, there are all kinds of sort of social and cultural factors. There's also the burden of motherhood, um, where women are still responsible for doing so much more childcare than than men are, and so much more emotional labor and housework than men are, that they just, we just don't got time. We're busy. <laughs> yes. Um, so there's so many factors that go into it, but it, it does feel like we're having that conversation now more than we ever had. And I don't think it's all because of the Women's March, but I think it is more like the Women's March is one illustration of the fact that people are ready to tackle on, tackle some of these challenges, hopefully. Yeah, it's a flashpoint. It's these the, all of those issues that you just mentioned that women have been dealing with um, for, for their lives. And you have Donald Trump as a candidate directly challenging and bringing to the foreground all those feelings and injustices all and then his election which is which becomes you know a flashpoint it's like I've always felt this for my life but now it's come out into the open that this is actually happening this is a real thing people really believe this and he's won the presidency and I'm not okay with that and these other millions of people like one percent of the U.S. population participated in the first march yeah. That's that's crazy. That is such a huge number. It's like the largest march in U.S. history by far. One percent of the population. Um, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. It's just saying it out in the open that these things are are really happening. We're having these conversations more and more. Um, and you see that. Yeah, you see those conversations happen in real life more and more as well. And of course, a lot of um, what happened with the Women's March preceded um, what happened with the Me Too movement rising up, um, which feels kind of connected, but, you know, dealing with a different one of the aspects of the issues that we've been talking about here um, and which is in a different way is starting to challenge some of the um, privileges of power that that perhaps you know, have flown under the radar for a really long time. And I think, so I think there's the, the, there's a lot going on. And I think, but personally for me, I think it's felt like I've been really glad to see these conversations being had, but it's also kind of hard. I don't know if you feel this way, but it's, it's, it's difficult to be confronted with how deeply ingrained so much of the, so many of these bad behaviors, so many of the people, the men that I've respected have turned out to behind the scenes be behaving in such awful ways. It's been such a painful process. And I think for in the midst of what's been a really painful two years anyway with, with Donald Trump. So I guess maybe that's another thing that the wind march can do, as you say, is bring some positive positivity and some optimism in because we, we really need a happy place right now. Yeah. I totally agree. I think also that it's, yes, it has been really painful. It's been really like some, some real heroes that have turned out to be anything, but, but I think that, um, 
I hope that it is worth it. I hope that we, we, I, I do think we need to sort of have this painful period in order to bring all this stuff to the foreground. Um, totally I agree. don't think it's possible to have, I don't think it's possible for these things to come to light and not have it be painful. And there, and I do think it's impo- important that it comes to light. So those things add together means that it's necessary pain. Yeah. Um, and I, I, like, I believe that that's okay. What I really hope is that it'll be, it will affect change. It will be for something that it will mean that sexual harassment policies are instilled in institutions and corporations and people will be people will change their policies so we prevent this from happening in the future i i hope that that is happening um to make to justify the pain and i guess i guess to some extent we'll see but um it does feel like there is there is the beginnings of real change um, and the possibility for real change if we can if we can reach out and grab it. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's for me, it's about let's not lose the momentum. Let's remember um, that we don't want to go back to where we were. And let's, as you say, let's make it worth it and and keep pushing through that pain to get to something better. Um, so and, you know, whether the next president, you know, and whether the next president is, is female or not, um, I think the next president of the United States who is a Democrat and has to be a Democrat, please. <laughs> um, I think we'll, we'll come to a, the next democratic president of the United States will, will come to the presidency as the leader of a movement that is not just kind of led by women and, and led by the concerns of women, but also um, informed by women, informed by women's experience in a way that I think will be helpful to all of us. Um, and I think, you know, that that's one thing that I think I'm also taking some heart in is the fact that these lived experiences that women have had um, in all walks of life have been invisible in a lot of ways in the political system until now. And so it's, it's interesting to see people just dealing with the, you know, the descriptive reality of what women's lives look like, let alone the kind of policy prescriptions. That's been really interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. You need, like, you see this in companies when you have at least one third of women in leadership that reflects, it does so many things for that, for that firm. It does things like just a role model so that you have building more women into the pipeline. You have things that, um, like, you just have better policies. You have more diverse opinions at the top. So that leads to better financial decision-making and and more risk mediation, all these things. Um, and when you look at politics, um, you see the same things happening. You see when you have diversity, um, you, when you have more women on the, at the top, you 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 see the that impact and those and policy change that will actually address the population that um, our politicians are representing. It's not just one population anymore. It is so many different faces and so many different backgrounds and lived experiences. Fabulous. Well, I think that is a great note on which to leave uh, that section of the podcast. Are you able to stick with me for a minute and we'll play the gut check game? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Great. Let's go for it. So for those of you who are new to the Primarily 2020 podcast, this is the gut check game. I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap. Inside of it are some slips of paper with the names of people who have been talked about as prospective presidential candidates for 2020. I'm going to draw a name out and announce that person as the winner. And then Lan and I will just 
check our guts and see how it feels. So am I giving you, um, like what's, what kind of, am I giving you like a yay, nay, or a, an Give me a couple sentences of how you feel. Um, so just, just, yeah, let, 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 let it out. So it's not just a yes or no question. We have complicated feelings about things. At least I do. All right. So I'm going to reach in and I've got my first name, which is the 2020 democratic nominee is Joe Biden, former vice president. Complicated. (laughs) (laughs) We have feelings about Joe. We have feelings. Um, I think that Joe definitely has experience. Um, He's obviously was very well liked um, as Obama's vice president. Um, And he in recent years has been a great advocate um, for women's rights and calling upon men to step it up and things like that. Um, But I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of someone, I'm in favor of someone newer um, this time around. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty fair summary. Um, I, I love Joe Biden. I, I actually have very warm feelings towards him as a person, but I don't necessarily convert those feelings into wanting him to run again, um, partly because, as like you, I kind of want to see someone new. Um, he's very old, <laughs> and um, I know Trump is also very old, but I kind of just want to see younger people. I, I think we have so many wonderful new leaders and Joe's also tried to run for president a couple of times before, and it didn't really take off. I kind of feel like there was a reason why he didn't win either of the two times he he ran before. So that that gives me pause. And then I also, and you didn't mention it, but um, you're right. He has been, in many ways, a wonderful advocate for women's issues, and I think that advocacy is severe, is sincere. Um, But he also took a lot of criticism, which I also think is justified for the way that back in the 90s, he handled um, the Anita Hill hearings. Um, And, you know, that was kind of the first that was kind of the first big Me Too moment in America where people were having serious conversations about sexual harassment. And Joe Biden was the head of the Judiciary Committee at the time. And I think he himself has conceded that he didn't necessarily treat her in the way that he would treat her now if he were doing it again. Um, and, and so I think he he kind of flubbed that opportunity a little bit. And, and that does make me, I think, in, as you say, in a, in, a, in a time where, although he has been a fantastic advocate for women's issues, I just think would have been nice if he had dealt with that a little differently at the time. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. <laughs> All right, let's do another name. I've got... Okay, this is a bit out of left field, so bear with me. The 2020 presidential nominee is Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> that is left field. That's left field. Just mixing it up. Um, I, I love Oprah. We all love um, Oprah. We all love Oprah. Um, but I... I she, I mean, I, I, I know that she is not, she would not run. She said very clearly that she would not run. Um, so it helps me to say that, yeah, I, 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 I don't think this would be a good idea. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I totally get that reaction. I have a slightly different reaction. Um, and, and, and I think I'm, I'm kind of in the minority on this one, especially amongst kind of serious Democrats, because I totally understand the point of view of like, you're not a politician. And actually, there are things you need to do as a politician, you need to understand about politics to, to run for office. I kind of wouldn't mind seeing her run. I don't know if I necessarily would want her to be nominated. But the reason I, I feel like it'd be interesting to see her run is, well, first of all, she is she's not just a female black candidate, black candidate, but she's a female black woman from a very impoverished background. She had real struggles growing up. She's really um, she's really found her way through um, to an identity and a purpose in life that um, I really admire and respect as a human being. Like you say, we all love Oprah. But I also think she's just really good at TV. And as much as that sounds really shallow, that is Donald Trump's one core skill. It's kind of the only thing he's good at. And uh, there's a part of me that just kind of wants to see a big TV battle between the two of them. <laughs> I just want them to fight it out in a grudge match. She would wipe the floor with him. She is so much better at the thing he's good at than he is. Fair enough. It would definitely be an interesting race. <laughs> it would be worth watching. You know, I don't know that I'd vote for her, but there's a part of me that wants to see her run just because why the heck not at this point? <laughs> I know you've got to run in a few minutes. Have you got time for one more? Yeah, let's do one more. Fabulous. Let's see what we've got here. Okay. Oh, okay. So this is a name. That's a reaction. This is a name. <laughs> the 2020 Democratic nominee is former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh <laughs> I I don't know enough about him to make a really informed um, opinion, but I um, yeah I I don't I don't know much enough about him. But what does your what does your gut say? Um, my gut says no. Um, I you know like I it's no just, thanks. <laughs> um. Yeah, he's you know he's a leader. He's a head of a. He's been he's a court. He's corporate America. He yep. is. Yeah, that that. When I think of Bloomberg, I think of corporate America. I think of the financial industry. I think of, um, and I and he's also like really old. Like I um, it's just like it doesn't. It's just Does, not resonating. Like it's just, not the things that I want in my presidential candidate. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I'm kind of in the same place as you. I, I also have this instinctive reaction of billionaire. Like you know, that would be the second consecutive billionaire president that we would elect. Just no. Um, you're right. Yeah, he's he's corporate America. He's financial services, and like you know. I'm not saying he's all bad, but I don't think it's what it's certainly not what I'm looking for. I hope it isn't what America is looking for. And it feels like kind of the opposite of some of the political trends that we've seen, which feels like we're in more of a populist time. And Trump has completely lied to in order to pretend that he's a sincere populist. But mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I would like to see uh, not not necessarily a kind of rabid populist, but I would like to see somebody who stands up for ordinary Americans. And I don't see any evidence that that's where Michael Bloomberg is coming from. Yeah, definitely. 
I, man, I feel like I really was like a like Eeyore on these three um, <laughs> things that I had. I was like really excited to talk about some of my favorites, but um, yeah, go on, list, 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 list the people you are really excited about, just so we can end on a on a high. <laughs> um, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren are the two candidates that I am very, very excited about. Yeah, um, yeah, that. very excited. I well, think- I did. I did a, lo- a long podcast about making the case for Warren a couple weeks ago because I I do think she's underestimated at this point um, as a as a really smart political thinker. Whatever you think of her as a candidate, her ideas have been consistent and consistently strong since as long as she's been in public life. So she's um, done so much work with corporations, with corruption, with affordable housing, with just and she, I think she would. I think she is being underestimated. I think she did so well. Um, in Iowa with her exploratory committee and um, she really resonated with voters there um, just in the last month I think yeah I think people are are not quite like they they don't like she appeals to both sides way more than I think people think people think she's like oh she's like Bernie Sanders she's all the way on the left she I mean she's born in Oklahoma she has that small town um, you know that that appeal to a lot of conservative voters I think she'll surprise us Interesting. Well, there's, I mean, there are a lot of fantastic people um, who are either in the race or, or soon to get in the race, we think. Um, you know, some of the names we've talked about, Kirsten Gillibrand announced this week that she's she's going to run. Um, you know, there are a fantastic roster of candidates. Um, and I think, you know, my, the whole premise of this podcast is it's going to be exciting to watch and see how each of them present themselves. Um, so I kind of want to start from a from a blank slate and, and see how people put themselves forward to the public, because I think there are so many good reasons why Democrats should be elected. I'll be curious to see which which of the reasons each candidate chooses to emphasize, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. Fabulous. Lon, it's been an absolute joy to speak to you today. Thank you for making the time and, and thank you for being patient through some technical difficulties at the beginning. Um, and I hope we will get you back on the podcast sometime. It's been it's been really fun. Yeah, it's been really fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Karen. All right. Talk to you soon, Lon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. And that's it for this week. Wherever you are in the world, I hope that you will be out this weekend marching and acting and working in support of women's equality and women's issues and generally human issues and human equality. Um, If you are uncomfortable um, for the reasons that were discussed earlier on the podcast with the US Women's March, but you would still like to be active this weekend, there are a number of alternatives available, including a march that's being organized around the country by an organization called the Women's March Alliance which is a distinct and separate group from the Women's March. You can also find all sorts of other ways to be active and and supportive in your community this weekend, and I I hope that you will. If you are in London, as discussed, please join us at the Women's March on Portman Square um, on Saturday. We are so excited to see many of you there. Um, In other news, um, this weekend, uh, next week, I will be um, recording a podcast looking specifically at polling and the current state of the race. Um, I'll be interviewing my colleague, the former uh, Greenberg Quinlan Rosner partner, uh, James Morris, who is my friend and colleague, um, and we'll be digging into what the early polls are saying, whether they're actually meaningful at this point, when we should start paying attention to polls, and what will be influencing the polls at this page, at this point in the process. So, should be really, really interesting. Um, I hope you will tune in 
then. And in the meantime, if you do have any questions or you have any feedback or you just want to sound off on some of the things that we've talked about today, um, you can always reach me on Twitter at Karen J-R, that's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. Um, or if you are using the mobile version of the Anchor app, you can leave me a voicemail. Nobody ever does that, by the way. So if you are listening on the Anchor app, I haven't had any yet. I've had a lot of Twitter comments, but no voicemails, and I would love to get one. Um, and if you do choose to, to, to send me an Anchor voicemail, I will, um, if it's interesting and thoughtful um, and relevant and doesn't have too many swears in it, I will try and use it in a future podcast. Have a wonderful week and uh, happy activism. <laughs>